There it is. Buddy, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were talking for like an hour. And you didn't he knew, move he a knew this was coming. And now you're walking around the hardwood. Why you gotta play me like this, bro? Hello and welcome to the EDH Recast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan. You guys know the best part about visiting Switzerland? What's that? The flag The flag is a big plus. <laughs> That's a geography joke. Oh my goodness. I think you're missing out how these actually should be kind of funny, Matt. <laughs> is it no. a geography joke or is that called vexillology or is my nerd cred showing now? I'm not sure. Quit making up words. That's not your That's not your thing. Anywho, next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins. It's Dana Roach. I'm not sure what has me more thrown here. Matt's actually funny joke or Joey just casually dropping a reference to vexillology. <laughs> I'm glad that we can wow you, Dana. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Decks versus data. We're bringing it back. Yeah, that it's going to be we good. We are back, I want to say, several episodes, at least 25 episodes or something like that ago. We did a decks versus data where we compared our personal deck lists against the data found on EDHREC, looking over the top and the signature cards for our chosen commander. And that was really fun because we got to see particular differences that... You know, stood out cards that were showing up as very popular that we weren't running and vice versa. And that was really cool. So we thought that we would revisit that topic because it's a really cool exercise. But before we do, Matt, there's a review that was posted on the 1st of March that you wanted to share with us because it totally made my day. You are right. So since, you know, we had a review that caught my attention, of course, it's going to catch Joey's attention because this person appreciates puppers and doggos so the review says another great episode after or and learning that joey's a corgi owner made my day as a fellow loaf owner i guess that's slang for corgi uh i catch serious side eye if i'm paying more attention to my cards than to him serious though the advice suggestions and knowledge the show continues to lend is invaluable keep it up yeah well mr chris von doom whoever you are uh we appreciate the comment we appreciate the feedback I, I wish you liked bigger dogs, but floof is floof. <laughs> I know your great Dane is probably very jealous that he wasn't mentioned in one of the reviews, but I'm so excited. Corgi owners unite. I mean, dogs in general, We all, I, dogs are good enough. Yeah, let's be real. A dogs and magic podcast would absolutely be fantastic. Oh, I would subscribe. <laughs> I, w- I would be there all day. That's a, twi- yeah, and- that's a Twitter account you need to su- set up now, Matt, is, is dogs and magic. <laughs> I mean, my Twitter feed, you guys pretty much summed up like 80% of my Twitter feed. It's puppies and wholesome memes and magic. That sounds very on brand for you, Matt. I totally love it. And listeners, if you want to leave us a review that also mentions dogs or, you know, also magic cards, I guess we could talk about that too. That would be really, really appreciated. We appreciate all of those reviews, but 
Man, that one really captured my heart, so we just wanted to share it on the show. But let's get to the actual decks versus the data. We're going to be each putting forth one of our tributes, one of our particular personal favorite decks, and comparing it against the data that is found on EDHREC to see what particular differences may or may not stand out. Sometimes our decks will be very similar to the data, but sometimes they'll be completely different, and it just seems like a pretty fun exercise. Dana, do you mind getting us started off? What deck are you submitting? Reki, the history of Kamigawa. This is a deck that you've referenced quite a lot, actually. You seem to be pretty famous for it, I would think. It is. It's one of my favorite decks, and I, I like the fact that it's kind of an obscure commander who doesn't see a lot of play. So this is the first one I that jumped to mind when I wanted to do this show. All right. So what does Reki, the history of Kamigawa, actually do? He is a 1-2 for 3 mana, 2 and a green. He's a human shaman. And he's very simple. Whenever you cast a legendary spell, draw a card. So I feel like we've seen something kind of recent with the new Jorah Weatherlight Captain who had that historic bend to tour, which also encompasses legendary cards. So this is just a mono green version. Uh, basically, yes. Same thing. Um, I was playing this well before Jorah came out, but yeah, very similar. So before we actually get started with the data, I do want to ask, what drew you specifically to Reki? Is it just because it was a weird restriction or was it, you know, you wanted a green deck or what kind of drew you to that commander? So I had wanted to build a green deck um, way back several years ago and the spoilers for, I think it was Core Set 2014 came out and I saw Yassan the Wanderer Bard spoiled. So it was right at the time I was putting the deck together I, I, or, or wanted to build one. So I'm like, I'll just put Yassan. It's going to be, you know, it's a, it's an, it was one of the intro deck commanders at the time. You could just buy in any big box store. I'm like, so it's ter obviously terrible. So I'm going to build a deck around that commander. I'm just going to put a bunch of creatures. I'll tutor up, you know, kind of treat it almost like a birthing pod, whatever. So I built the deck like literally upon release. I, I had the deck waiting for Yassan and could wait to try it out. And then realized three games in, it played exactly the same every single time. So at that point, I had kind of the shell of a mono green deck. I had the lands put together. I had the basic removal spells. I'm like, well, okay, what could I build that's actually interesting? So I just went through a list of mono green commanders and saw Reki. And I'm like, okay, well, that's one I've never seen anybody use. He, I, I can see what I would do there. Just run a bunch of janky legendary green creatures. You know, the 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 build path was laid out for me. I, I, I could do what I wanted to do, which was build a non-themed deck and build one for a commander I never saw anybody play. So here we are. Nice. And yeah, that story with Yison is pretty interesting because as I understand, Yison is actually one of the top tier commanders, isn't he? Because of the ability to fetch out particular combo pieces or something. Yeah, he's very good in CEDH. And, and I wasn't even necessarily doing anything that crazy. I just, it, the way I was playing it, very very quickly you can go get something like, you, you just chain up. And in, in my version, I was just hitting Seedborn Muse with the five, by the time you're at five counters, you can get there pretty quickly, hit Seedborn Muse, and at that point, you just win the game if no one has a response because then you can untap on every turn and then get Crater Hoof pretty much immediately and just just wipe the board. So even with like my just homebrewed version of it right after it came out, it was effective. It was just boring. But yeah, today it's a legit CEDH level deck, I think. Yeah, and it's nice to see that you've ported that particular, you know, all of the stuff that you were going to do for Yisan into this deck here. How about we start getting through some of that data? Sure. So signature cards first, I would assume we're going to look at. First thing I will mention, there's 132 decks in the database in EDH Rec, and we scrape sites where I have at least two lists up. So of those 132, <laughs> two of them are mine, and that's probably their, 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 it's the clone 
deck. So I'm slightly skewing these stats with uh, two, two, this deck entered twice, one set MTG Goldfish and one set Architect. So yeah, there'll be a little bit there. And as well, there's just so few decks that there's probably going to be less variance here than we're going to see elsewhere. And because of what the commander says, you know, draw a card off a legendary, there's also going to be a little bit less variance because anyone who builds him is probably going to kind of do the same thing. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I think even just looking at the first few signature cards, things like Heroes Podium and Kamal's Druidic Vow, we're already seeing other cards that also reference legendary permanence. Yes. So the, those first two definitely do a Heroes Podium. Uh, each legendary creature you control gains plus one, plus one for each other legendary creature you control. And then that's obvious once you get five or six creatures down, that's insane. Um, it's a beast with it's a beastmaster ascension without having to have counters on it, basically. And you can also tap it to look at the top X cards of your library, so you can spend five mana to dig down five and find a legendary creature to put into your hand. So it's a great mana sink as well. And Kamalstradic Vow is basically just another um, version of. Oh my God, I've just forgotten the name of the sorcery. Genesis Wave. Genesis, Genesis Wave. Wave. So just another Genesis Wave that costs one less. That's terrible in any deck except for Reki, basically. Right, because it lets you get a bunch of lands and legendary permanents. And would I be safe in assuming that nearly 100% of your permanents are going to be legendary? Um, not 100%, but way more are than aren't. Yeah, there's a, that there's, definitely makes there's sense. There's a few like ramp spells, things like that. But, but by and large, I try to run as many legendaries as possible for that reason. And most often it seems that those legendary, the legendary status is going to be probably majorly on creatures. There are, you know, Reki will draw you a card off of a legendary artifact or a legendary enchantment or stuff like that. But looking at the next few signature cards, I'm seeing a lot of creatures. Yeah, it's definitely a creature-based deck. And of the top five um, signature cards, I'm running all five of those. We mentioned the first two followed by Dasan the Falling Leaf, uh, Avaya Pashiri, and Gorklaw. So I'm running all five of those cards in my deck. Although Gorkla isn't particularly good, he's probably next to be cut whenever I get a green legendary creature that's slightly better. He's probably getting yanked. And then we go into a few more creatures right in a row. We have Glissa Sunseeker and Huato, Honored Physician, who I am not running. Oh, all right. So that's our first discrepancy. So yep. Huato, Honored Physician, one green green for a one two legendary creature human. He can tap to put target creature card from your graveyard on top of your library, but you can only activate that ability during your turn before your attack step. Why does that one not quite make the cut compared to some of the other uh, creatures that we're seeing? All these creatures are just cogs. None of them are, are engines in a machine, so they're all kind of interchangeable. And I just found that there was never a particular creature for the most part I cared about getting back. I would rather just keep moving forward than look behind. All right. that's. Uh, I almost feel like that's a pretty green philosophy. Maybe I'm incorrect since it's a green card that literally returns stuff from the graveyard. But <laughs> right. The, the, that is... Uh, Pretty interesting. I like that there's a, a thematic bend to it in addition. Like you've got a philosophy along with the, the cards in the deck. I, th I think that's pretty cute. Yeah, the, the kind of deck philosophies I want to run straight forward, straight at you. And you, if you happen to dodge out of the way and I hit the wall and leave a hole shaped like me in it, then that's just what happens. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of evolution there and I think that Green would appreciate it. Yeah. So then we have Sirak the Huntcaller. He is in the deck and Jedit Ohanan of Afavra, who is not... He has uh, been removed at some point for a slightly more reliable legendary creature. And then Pelucranos rounds out the the top 10, and I am running Pelucranos. 
All right, so Lucranos is pretty cool because it can like fight and deal damage and stuff. Jed Ojanan, yep. you said you weren't running that one. That's the cat that creates more cats whenever it attacks or blocks. Was it just yes. feeling too clunky for the deck? Six mana is a lot. Yeah, there was just something better that eventually came along. I don't even remember what creature it was that was you know similar in power and toughness that I could cast for you know four or something. So it just was a matter of efficiency. He just got bumped. Yeah, totally makes sense. I can especially see for a deck like this, whenever I notice that there's a commander that has an ability that rewards you by drawing a card for whatever it is, be it Tatiova or Gitrog Monster or Reki or Joyra or whatever, uh, when the reward is to draw a card, frequently you want to slim down and make whatever that particular clause is that draws you a card, you want to make that happen as much, as much, as much as possible. So a very large creature, a large mana cost, is going to prevent you from doing that multiple times in one turn, whereas a really low curve is going to let you draw multiple cards off of that thing. I have to imagine that that's also a pretty big consideration for you. Yes, for sure. Because the deck kind of winds up, particularly later on in the game, it tends to play almost like a storm deck. I have quite a few different mana doublers in the deck, so what winds up happening is it's cast a creature to draw a card that's hopefully a creature that I can cast to draw a card, so then I can chain like six or seven things in one turn out and keep, you know, without, without having to worry about cards in hand because it kind of self-refills as I'm going along. All right, Dana, what else we got here rounding out the signature cards? The last couple signature cards we have here are Sword of the Animist, Arashi the Sky Asunder, Hall of Triumph, and Nylea, God of the Hunt. I am running Sword of the Animist and Nylea. I do not have Arashi in the deck anymore, nor do I have Hall of Triumph. Okay, so Sword of the Animist and Nylea, people are probably a bit more familiar with, but Arashi the Sky Asunder, that's a Kamigawa card, which basically means that no one knows what it does. It's a Kamigawa card. Um, you can tap it to – it's a 5-5 five, five for 5 mana. You can tap it for X and a green to deal X damage to target creature with flying. And it also has channel, which is a bad ability, where you can spend <laughs> uh, green, green, and X, and you can discard it and deal X damage to each creature with flying. Uh, Arashi wasn't a bad card because I'm really, really short on flyers in this deck. It was just something that, it, that you know I found myself using so infrequently even though – in theory, the defensive ability to hit flyers would be useful. I just wanted to have more more offense was useful to me than the occasional bit of defense. I think that totally makes sense, especially looking at that ability. It feels kind of clunky. Using the channel ability wouldn't draw you any cards off of Reki. Right. You know what could be useful? This particular Arasha, the Sky Ascender card. I wonder if Nylea would be, excuse me, not Nylea, Nikia, the new Gruul commander, from uh, Ravnica Allegiance. I almost wonder if she would want to make use of an activated ability like this because it would give her the effect of a spell without actually having to cast an instant or sorcery since she's restricted from doing so. That seems like probably a better place than Reki where you're looking to do a whole bunch of stuff a bit more aggressively. Yes, I would agree with that. And Hall of Triumph is just insignificant enough. Creatures get plus one, plus one if I choose green, which I always would. But for three mana, I would want to do something usually a little more impactful than that. Really? I actually am pretty surprised to hear that Hall of Triumph isn't making it in. Three mana, you draw a card off of Reki, and it would buff your entire team. And that's just... doesn't quite get there? Doesn't quite get there, because I usually tend to win with one big swing where I kill everyone simultaneously. And at mm -hmm. that point, plus one, plus one doesn't... just isn't relevant. Okay, interesting. So it's almost like you're kind of storming out, or what Usually, is it? yeah. Okay. So. So, so the win conditions usually winds up being either a really big, like, Kamal Shredik Vow into, you know, Fort. Because I have multiple mana doublers, so oftentimes when I do Kamal Shredik Vow or I cast the card whose name I'm once again forgetting. Genesis Wave. Genesis, Genesis Wave. Wave. My <laughs> lord. Um, so usually when I cast those two, it's like Genesis Wave 
ours would exile for you know 24 or something because I number one it's green so I can ramp number two I have things like vernal bloom and I have um, extra pointer land so I have lots of mana doublers in here as well so oftentimes when I cast those it's for a huge amount of mana and at that point I can just get enough creatures out I can just overrun everybody or if I have creatures out because I've stormed out and put you know 14 creatures in play I have an overrun or an overwhelming stampede or something or I have those baked into somebody like Kamal where I can activate them from the creature. Or Nylea plenty of times. If I have a ton of mana, I can use Nylea's activated ability to give all my creatures a, a huge overrun. Or Dragonthorn of Cartier, Dragonthorn of Car yeah, Tarkir, excuse me, does the same thing. So I have a bunch of ways to basically at some point hit everybody for with creatures that are all, you know, plus 22, plus 22 or something. All right. Well, we'll move on now to the next section. Not the signature cards that are a bit more unique to Reki, but the top cards. These are cards that are definitely a bit more common in green decks, but they also make a really big appearance on Reki's page as well. Let's get started on those. Yeah, we have Yeva, Nature's Herald, and Aronis' Monument are the first two. Yeva just gives your creatures flash, and she is a relatively efficiently costed creature. Aronis' Monument is from the re recent Amonkhet block and green creature spells you control cast one less and whenever you cast a green creature spell creatures you control get excuse me target creature you control gets plus two plus two and gains trample i imagine and gains trample, which important. is which can be a big deal particularly because a lot of times if i'm taking that big turn i can oftentimes use that to buff recce in particular so if i you know cast six or eight spells in that one turn that are creatures and i turn recce into a 1919 and then i buff him with something else, I can use him specifically to take out one person with commander damage. That's really cool. And I had honestly totally forgotten that Ronus's monument and all of the monuments from Amonkhet are legendary artifacts. Yep, and it draws a card for three mana. Yeah, that's really cool. All right, after that, we've got some Ixalan stuff, Galta, Primal Hunger, and Growing Rites of Itlamok. Galta's great. He's almost always just two mana to cast in this deck. And Sorry, Growing I gotta interrupt you. You mistook it with Gorklaw, you're mistaking it with Galta. They're both she's. Yes, sorry, her. All good, but she's easy to uh, she's easy to cast for two mana, and growing rights is really easy to flip. So it basically becomes a free guy's cradle that also draws me a card when I cast it. Yeah, to be honest, if you weren't running either of those, I would severely start to question your sanity. <laughs> yes. However, the next card on the list I am not running: Bow of Nylea. Oh, all right. Why is that? I did run it for a short period in time because the thought process was if I was doing an overrun, I only needed to put one point of damage into blocking creatures. But I found it just didn't matter. Plenty of times if I've got something like Galta out or some other big creature and then I've used Monument to buff up Galta to, you know, some disgusting number and then done the Overwhelming Stampede after that or done the Dragon Throne after that, my creatures are so big it just doesn't matter. Having so that additional Death Touch just doesn't... Yeah. So it, it and, and the abilities on it are, are all fine, but none of them felt better than something else I was running in that slot. Yeah, let's see. So it can tap to either put a plus one counter on a creature or deal two damage to a target creature with flying or give you some life or recycle some cards. And I feel like all of those are little abilities that we've noted over previous cards. For example, recycling some cards from your graveyard, you aren't running Hua Tuo or dealing damage to a creature with flying, you're not running Arashi. So it's just doing a bunch of other little stuff in cards that we've seen before that you're also not running. Yeah, it was just, I mean, in three mana to draw a card isn't terrible necessarily and it enables a little bit of devotion as well, but it just wasn't good enough anymore. At one point in time, it was in deck, but it just no longer kind of cut the mustard. Yeah, it makes sense for a deck that is consistently attacking throughout the game, but you mentioned that you're more of a in-one-turn-I-swing-out kind of deal. Yes, for, for sure. That makes sense. 
All right, we've got a few more creatures down here. Kamal, first of Croza, and then Nissa, Vestwood Seer. Nissa's great value because she comes into play, draws me a card, does a thing, and then is really easy to flip in this deck into a Planeswalker that also has a way to get me another card in hand. Kamal is fantastic because he has an overrun baked in and plenty of times I can activate it five times in a turn if I happen to have Growing Rights out or I have Nykthos out or something in addition to a Mana Doubler or what have you. So again, it's really easy to use Kamal. And plenty of times Kamal, when I have Mana out and Kamal being there, deters anyone else from casting a board wipe because I will just use him to turn all in all my mana to turn all their lands into one ones. Yeah, that's such a sneaky, cruel ability with Kamal Fistacroza. For one green mana, target land becomes a 1-1 creature until end of turn. It is still a land. But if someone ever wants to Wrath of God and you've got five green mana up, you're like, okay, you can Wrath the board, but I'm taking five of your lands with me. Yep. And that that happened, that happened. is a deterrent that works really, really often. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty mean. And it's good insurance for a green deck, having not just things like heroic intervention to keep your army alive, but also just really big rattlesnakes. I'm yeah. totally all about it. What about, I, I guess I really should know the answer to this one already. I, I again question your sanity on this one. The next card that we're seeing on top cards here is Time of Need, which searches your deck for a legendary creature and puts it into your hand. Is you running that one? I ran it for a while and, you know, I had Worldly Tutor in here once upon a time as well. I just found like whenever I drew them, I'd look around and go, I don't, I have no idea what creature I'm going to go get. So I guess I'll go get something. But the creatures I got never really seemed to impact what I was doing. I felt like at some point, because at one point in time, I think I wound up replacing Time of Need with Harmonize because I would rather most of the time just draw three cards, two of which have a pretty good chance of being a creature that are going to then draw me two more cards. It just didn't matter whatever i got was not as important to my deck as just keeping everything flowing okay that's sorry i'm really thrown off i really expected that Tamanid would show up matt i know i've been conducting most of the interview with dana here but you got to help me out do you think that he's crazy for not running Tamanid? i think it's fine i think the justification for running harmonize over it is is fine because like dana said the upside is I mean, you have 25 creatures in the deck, and then you have a bunch of legendary non-creatures as well. So drawing three cards, you're almost assuredly going to get one, which is going to draw you another anyway. So you already got Time of Need covered, plus the additional maybe you draw two legendary permanents and a land. That's perfect. Uh, so I, I get why, and I do love Harmonize. So I I think I'm going to side with Dana. I think Time of Need is fine for a nice tutor effect if there's a certain silver bullet you need it's like say you need just need something big and stompy and go grab galta real quick i think it's fine but i i see why harmonize would get the spot over top of time of need okay i can't be voted off the <laughs> island like this that's not okay go well, back to your you just... corner we'll get back to you when we get to my deck and you're interviewing me <laughs> never mind no one asked you i'm very surprised all right i i've been outvoted though you've made your case you both, both of you made a, a compelling case, so I just I really would have expected that to be one of the top cards for Reki, but I guess what you're saying, I can I can totally see it with the way that the, the deck is playing out. Let's move on to some of these remaining creatures then. Sure. Then we have uh, Barufus de Crosa, who has a grandeur ability that does absolutely nothing in Commander. <laughs> so his basically he winds up being a five mana four four that whenever a forest comes into play, each creature you control gets plus one plus one and trample until end of turn. So that is enough. The fact that it gives all of them plus one and gives them all trample on top of it is probably what puts that over the top over something like the um, uh, temple, we looked at, or the Hall of Triumph looked at before that only gives my creatures plus one, plus one. 
And there's enough times with Baru where I would be able to, you know, cast something like Skyshard Claim and do two landfalls a turn or just do my normal land drop and Nature's Lore or something. So with a ramp spell, very often that winds up being a kind of mini overrun for the turn. It's not amazing, but it's good enough until something better comes along. I can imagine it being really, really disgusting if you've got like a Genesis wave with the Baru out. Right, yeah. Because then you get a bunch of lands into play. That's an, another one of those things that winds up turning, um, th- that makes both my Lee irrelevant because so many times that the numbers are just so high it doesn't matter. Really cool. All right, you mentioned Nylea just there as well. That was a god, but from a different plane. The next card here is a god from Amonkhet, and that's Ronus the Indomitable. Yeah, Ronus just winds up being a super cheap 5-5 who is almost always a creature. Yeah, gotta love it. A friend of mine has a Ronus deck. It's a Fight Club deck since Ronus is indestructible and had Death Touch. He can just use fight spells to kill any creature that he wants at all the time. Green Doom Blades are really gross, and I gotta imagine that a 3-mana 5-5 Death Touch indestructible is also going to be really good in a deck like this too. Yeah, yep. She is really, really solid. And Ronus is a he. Uh, for rounding out... Oh. The la- <laughs> I'm <laughs> no over <problem>. two. <laughs> no problems, Dana. Uh, rounding out the last top cards, we've got a slew of three mana creatures. Miri, Cat Warrior, Rishgar, Pima Renegade, Salvala, Heart of the Wilds, and Omnath, Locus of Mana. All four are in my deck, and all four are pretty effective. Miri's probably the weakest of the bunch, but she's still really efficient. A 2-3 three for three mana with... 14 keywords, so she's solid <laughs> enough. Uh, Rishkar is really nice, particularly because my commander tends to be so weak. So Rishkar comes down and turns my commander as well as Rishkar into mana dorks as long as – until I get to the point where I need them to not be mana dorks. So Rishkar, I actually put in – I think at the point at that point in time I was running what is the remove poison or remove infect from all creatures, uh, malaria. Oh, yeah. Malira Silvok Okay. I think I had her in the deck when Rishkar came out, and she was in there just because she was a cheap way to draw a card, and she was a body. I replaced her with Rishkar, assuming it probably wouldn't be a very meaningful change. And I've been – I've liked Rishkar quite a bit just because the ability to make Reki actually do something at that point in the game is really useful. All right. And the ability to produce mana, or in Omnath's case, hold on to mana. i got to yep. imagine that that also informs your decisions for Salvala and Omnath as well, and that's why they're so high up on Reki's. Yes. Page. Yeah. So Vala's is gross. Almost always, I'm almost always tapping her for 14 mana. And if I have something like a, a mana reflection out, you know, it's 28. And then without, if I happen to have Omnath out too, I mean, then things get bonkers. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, that was a really cool visit through the EDH rec page for Recky, the EDH Recky, if you will. Thanks <laughs> a bunch, Dana. No problem. I guess one final question before we leave off. You've mentioned some particular strategies with the deck, though. Is there any MVP card that maybe you would want to be in the top or signature cards that isn't at the moment? One that we have not mentioned. Man, I'm Piers Wim. We've talked about it before, liking the card in general. But Piers Wim is just great. In it, it ramps you a card. In my case, I almost always wind up grabbing Nykthos with it for my land. Mm-hmm. And it hits everybody else. And Nykthos, I mean, I, I can't think of the last time Nykthos tapped for less than 10 or so. Ooh. So, I mean, you cast Pierce Whim and basically I'm mana ahead. By, by casting a four mana sorcery, I'm mana ahead usually because it goes, get, goes and gets Nykthos and I wind up coming out ahead. So it's, yeah, probably my unsung hero in this deck would be Pierce Whim so far. I'm also a big fan of Dragonthorn of Tarkir. It's not a great card anywhere else, 
basically it says equipped creature has defender and you can spend two and tap it and other creatures you control gain trample and X, X until end of turn where X is this creature's power. So you put it on an Omnath and you just kill everybody. If Omnath's <laughs> got 20 mana or you even put it on a Galta, it's usually enough to wipe the board then to like wipe everybody out just with straight up combat damage. So it's, and it draws me a card. On top of that, it just draws me a card when I cast it. So that's that, kind of an unsung hero as well. Alrighty, I really like that MVP, but per tradition, we also have to challenge some stats, or in the case of our Dex versus Data episodes, we've got to challenge each other. And I think that Matt's got one here. He's got a challenge on Dana's deck. I do. So I've been rolling around, and I want to challenge three visits, and I want to challenge oh. Nature's Lore... I want to challenge Emerald Medallion or Concordant Crossroads, maybe even Song of the Dryads, but Dana knows why. Because they are not foils. Those are the only non-foil <laughs> cards. What a peasant. Um, Can't even afford a foil Song of the Dryads. That's I right. Know. Listeners, if you click on the actual link for uh, Dana's recce deck here, you foiled all of these cards out. It is glaring to look at. If it is available in foil in this deck, I have managed to foil it out so far. <laughs> or you haven't looked hard enough. I guess That's right. There's a there's a hidden foil emerald medallion somewhere that I have not managed to acquire. <laughs> have, haven't stumbled across it yet. But I do have one that that is a foil that you do have. Um, it's a Chroma's Memorial. So it is the most expensive card in your deck. Uh, and yes, it's a very powerful card. But hearing you talk about the deck and kind of walk us through your little deck tech, I feel like a Chroma's Memorial is almost a win more card. You have so much going on. You've talked about how it's kind of a combo storm everything out deck with uh, Yeva Nature's Herald. You can almost do it at instant speed. So you kind of pseudo haste anyways, but it's so expensive unless you're hitting it off of a very big Kamal's Druidic Vow or, or Genesis Wave. I don't know if it's really a great use of mana compared to the rest of the deck. And that's where it gets used. It comes into play for free off one of those two cards. And it's what enables me to kill everyone that turn rather than having to wait a turn for my stuff to actually be attackable and not have something sickness. Sure. So that's when it gets used. Um, and I just felt like Concordant Crossroads wasn't enough. Like there was enough times I would do that big Genesis wave and I would whiff because – or not whiff, but I'll put the creatures in play. But I couldn't swing with more than one or two. You know, I have a Lightning Greaves in here and I do have a Haste Enabler in the form of – What's the, there's a creature from Concept Arc here who Surak? I currently Surak gives a guy haste as well. So I could I had a couple of haste enablers, but I, that was never enough to kill the table. Since I put in Memorial, usually I hit one of the two. But yes, seven mana is a lot for something that for the most part is only coming into play off of a big Genesis wave or a big Kamal Shruti file. If they printed a another version of Concordant Crossroads for two mana, I would absolutely trade all the other stuff a Chromos Memorial does for that card. Alrighty. I think I think that's fair. Yeah. It's just like I said, it's it's so expensive. I see yes. it rotting in your hand more times than I not. I actually hate seeing it in my hand. I want it in my library when it comes time to cast one of those big big wave spells. Sure. Nice. All right. That makes sense. Cool observations. I really, really like the deck. Time now for us to move on to one of mine though. From my deck I have to put forward one of my babies. Y'all know that I claim to be a necromancer. The last time we did a dex versus data, I actually put forward a plus one counters deck. So this time I've got to cash in on that necromancy street cred. We're going to be looking at my Marin of Clan Neltoth deck. Matt, 
If you don't mind interviewing me, grilling me about the cards that are showing up in my Marin deck, according to EDH Rec, we'll see whether any of uh, my cards challenge the data or not. I would love to roast you over the flames of deck building <laughs> critiques. So, looking at the deck, I, it looks pretty Marin-ish, <laughs> but why don't you just take us through take us through the signature cards? I know you have quite a few of them on there, but there are a few that you are missing. Um, so, kind of take us through those top few cards. What are you playing? What are you not playing and why? Yeah. Well, before I even get to the signature cards, I actually want to mention the two new cards that are showing up on the EDH rec page from Marina Klein Neltaz. Oh. Uh, yes. Do tell. So those are the new ones from Ravnica Allegiance. EDH rec does like to highlight some newer cards that haven't gotten, you know, too much uh, data just yet, but, you know, are so far making some waves. Two new cards that are showing up from Marin from Ravnica Allegiance are Priest of Forgotten Gods and Guardian Project. And these are actually pretty interesting to me. So a lot of folks are cottoning on to Priest of Forgotten Gods. I think 77% of people are playing it so far. It's a two mana, one, two black creature that can tap to sacrifice two other creatures. Any number of target players each lose two life and sacrifice a creature. And then you add two mana, two black mana, and you draw a card. Sounds really great for Marin because Marin, as we all know, likes to sacrifice creatures to get experience counters and then revive stuff. And making other people sacrifice creatures while you're doing that seems really good. I'm not running Priest of Forgotten Gods, though. What I am running is Guardian Project instead. I do appreciate that Priest of Forgotten Gods will draw me a card, but something like Guardian Project is going to draw me more cards because it draws me a card basically whenever a creature enters the battlefield, and with the number of sacrificing and reanimating that I'm doing in this deck, tons of the ETB is happening. But I also just think that Priest of Forgotten Gods is a little slow, uh, since you have to wait to tap it and then also sacrifice two other creatures to make other people sacrifice creatures, I'd just prefer to play something like a Fleshbag Marauder. And I've got, if I have something like a Guardian Project out, then I'll be drawing a card incidentally off of a Fleshbag Marauder or a Plague Crafter anyway. So Priest didn't quite make the cut. But it's so interesting to look at the stats because Priest of Forgotten Gods showing up in 77% of Marin decks, but Guardian Project only showing up in 13%. And for me, it's the opposite. I prefer Guardian Project to Priest. I was going to say, so you're saying 77% of Marion players lately are wrong. I guess I am. It's pretty bold words. (laughs) Well, I will will say this, Joey. Guardian Project is also in my deck, and it's also in Matt's deck. I think we've all put forward a a green deck, and all of us are playing that. Yeah, that's a a good enchantment. See, I I am redeemed, question mark. I think aside from Soul Ring, it is the only card we all three are sharing. Interesting. All right. That might be it. All right, let's move on to the signature cards now. We've got a lot of straightforward stuff. I think nearly all of which I am playing in my Marin deck. High Market, really cool land that lets you sacrifice a creature to gain a life. The life gain doesn't matter, but being able to sacrifice a creature at will definitely matters. Then some of the cards that I mentioned, like Plague Crafter and Fleshbag Marauder showing up when they enter, they make everyone sacrifice a creature. Really great play with Marin is to play those, sacrifice them, get an experience counter, and immediately revive them with Marin's ability at the end step to make everyone else sacrifice another creature and get another experience counter, which is really great. Similar move can be pulled off with Shriekmaw, also a card that I'm running. Let's you destroy any non-black non-artifact creature with an evoke cost. Really, really cool. Naturally, this is a reanimator deck, so the card Victimize is really great as well, also showing up here in the signature cards at card number five. Victimize lets you sacrifice a creature to revive two target creatures in your graveyard. They come in tapped, but who cares? I'm getting sacrifice and I'm getting reanimation effects. It's really great. It's not until about card number eight that we see a difference. So card number six and seven, Caustic Caterpillar and Sakura Tribelder. Any Marin player knows that those cards are totally worth their salt. Get you lands, destroy stuff, get you experience, really great. But the card that I'm not running among these uh, signature cards so far is Razaketh the Foul-Blooded. 
Eight mana, eight, eight demon with flying and trample that can let you pay two life and sacrifice a creature to search your library for a card and put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. This one I'm, I'm not actually running. Now, why why aren't you running Razaketh? Because it seems pretty great. You can sacrifice a creature. All you have to do is pay two life, so it's almost a free sack outlet. It's a big flying, flampling, whatever <laughs> you want to call it, beater. Why are you getting rid of a, basically a free tutor effect? So I'm. He's been in and out of the deck. Right now he's out. the The tutors that generally I would like to play are going to be much lower cost. So for example, later on we'll see the card Birthing Pod or the card Sadisi. Those are things that definitely help me go find the things that I need. But generally, when I need to find the things that I need, it's because I need them to set up so that I can eventually get to a creature that costs as much as Razaketh does. Marin, you know, is a really great commander who provides you a ton of value. But you do have to get that experience before she can actually make something come back out of the graveyard. And so I have to make sure that I have the ability to get all of that experience in the first place. And Razaketh is a really great top end for that. But usually by the time that I've gotten eight experience, I sort of feel like I've already set up with all of the other tutors or all of the other card advantage engines that I've been running in the first place. So by the time that Razaketh comes in, he can totally get me anything that I need. But I usually feel as though I've already gotten what I need. So that's why he didn't make the cut. All right, that's fair. Well, take us down the list. What about Spore Frog? Obviously, you have Merciless Executioner. You can't stop talking about those effects. Oh, yeah. Sacrifice uh, is Spore so Frog, powerful. Spore Frog, obviously. definitely in the deck. The ability to fog stuff whenever you need and get experience and revive it super easy. That is probably one of my favorite creatures to tutor right out of the gate, actually. Spore Frog, Viseraseer, and Sakura Tribe Elder are definitely really, really great because they're cheap and can immediately come back. Even I'll sacrifice Spore Frog when no one's attacking me. I want the experience counters. It's so good. I did mention earlier when we were talking about Razaketh, I mentioned Birthing Pod and Sidisi also showing up in the signature cards here. Both of them definitely showing up in my deck. They're great recursion engines. Really, really fun to go tutor stuff out. But then we're getting to a card that I'm not running, and that's Butcher of Malakir. Seven mana, five, four vampire warrior with flying that has the Grave Pact effect. Whenever you sacrifice a creature, so does everyone else. That's really powerful, but this one also didn't make the cut. Yeah, I know you and I both have talked about how this card is its so expensive for what it does. So it's not really surprising to see you not running it. Uh, what about if we move on a little bit, finish out the top or the signature cards, Eternal Witness, obviously. What if I told you that I wasn't running Eternal Witness? Would you vote me I off the island again? You. We would not believe we would you. Vote you off the, yeah, we wouldn't believe you. <laughs> that's a, that's it does everything you want to do. It's creature, it's graveyard, it's creature graveyard, it's Joey. Yeah. And, and as somebody who has written an article suggesting that perhaps everyone shouldn't run Eternal Witness, you are not one of those people. This deck absolutely should run Eternal Witness. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, because I'm abusing it so, so absolutely, much. Yeah, for sure. It's Oh, yeah. It's absolutely wretched. But I tell you what, when someone else mimic vats my Eternal Witness, I feel the most brokenhearted that I've ever felt. <laughs> it's, I, I, I could see why that's a, that's a shot to the feels right yeah, there. Yeah, it's detrimental. Alrighty. All right. Well, how about let's get rid of the signature cards. We we got those pretty quick. Obviously, you're running a lot of the signature cards because your deck is Marin. Um, <laughs> what about the top cards? How about uh, some of these pretty ubiquitous cards? Uh, also, Skull Clamp, Acidic Slime, Putrefy. What do you think of those three? I do really like them. There are a few more differences in my top cards than in my signature cards, though. Skull Clamp. Okay. Obviously, I'm going to be running that one. Drawing cards when things die. That getting value from death is everything that I want in life, so it's perfect here for Marin. Acidic Slime, also a great thing to keep recurring back out of the graveyard in case you need it. Being able to destroy 
an artifact enchantment or crucially destroying a land off of acidic slime can be way more important than it looks because you can destroy someone's maze of it you can destroy dana's nykthos you can destroy a bunch of stuff that would be offering too much utility to other people so that's a great one plus i like the death touch on defense marin doesn't usually tend to attack too much putrefy though i'm not i'm not running that one i'm not going to begrudge anyone for running putrefy but i have made upgrades in two forms I added an Assassin's Trophy when I was able to get a hold of one, but I also added in that split card that came out, Status and Statue from Ravnica, since that can give a creature Death Touch, or it can kill not just an artifact or creature, but also an enchantment for four mana. I preferred that versatility a little bit more. Yeah, yep. I, I think between Assassin's Trophy and things like Windgrace's Judgment, I think the game has just left Putrefy behind for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of tough. One of my biggest weaknesses for a deck like this is going to be a card like Rest in Peace or anything that affects my graveyard. But also something that I've run into is an effect like, you know, Torpor Orb or Hushwing Griff. This deck has got a lot of Enter the Battlefield abilities. And if that gets disrupted, I can't rely on just cards like Acidic Slime or Reclamation Sage to get rid of those different types of effects like a Torpor Orb or a Rest in Peace. So adding in the extra flexibility to destroy an enchantment with status and statue can definitely help save me when no other creature will to get rid of a rest in peace and the additional one mana so far hasn't seemed to gotten it doesn't get too much in my way but i do like having diverse removal on my spells while i have more pinpointed removal on my creatures and their enter the battlefield effects that's that's a fair it's a good good way to point out um i do think like you said and like dana said being being able to hit enchantments off of status statue that's pretty important considering yeah, yeah you you can't rely on rex sage you can't rely on all your creatures getting recurred if they're getting exiled. Exactly. Speaking of, Rex Sage is another one on the top cards here. Enters Battlefield, destroys an artifact or enchantment. Obviously, we're running that. I've been talking about it. Lightning Greaves also shows up here. Holy crap, protecting Marin is job number one for a deck like this. She is the recursion engine. She is the value engine. You need to keep her alive because all that people have to do is get rid of her a couple of times. And despite all of the extra value that her deck is capable of, if people get rid of her enough, you will kind of be up the creek without a paddle. So Lightning Greaves, super important. I'd recommend nearly as much protection as you can get for Baron because she's very, very important. Yeah. Well, what do you think about this next card then? I know it's a kind of a good pseudo Marin. It's a good recursion engine, but Journey to Eternity. What do you think about that guy? I do like it, but it honestly hasn't made too much of an impact for me yet. So Journey to Eternity. Really? I, I know it's kind of weird. I, I almost wonder if I haven't given it the opportunity to shine or something. So Journey to Eternity, you enchant a creature you control. And when the enchanted creature dies, you return it to the battlefield under your control. And you return Journey to Eternity flipped into Atzal, Cave of Eternity, a land that you can pay mana to revive creatures from your graveyard. I like everything about this. It gives me another Enter the Battlefield effect. It lets me, you know, sacrifice a creature and keep it around, which is really great. And in case Marin goes away, I can revive creatures. But it just honestly hasn't made as big a splash as I expected it to. It doesn't feel like a second Marin yet. It feels just like sometimes I've had it and I haven't needed to cast it. I don't know. It just hasn't made as big a splash as I wanted to. It is in the deck, but it also just hasn't really been in the spotlight. It's really interesting because I... I know in the few games that I played it in my um, Moldrotha deck, it was very powerful. I, I loved it. So hearing you say that you're kind of lukewarm on it, it it's kind of surprising for me, honestly. Really? So in your Moldrotha deck, how was it something that you felt like you had to go out of your way to set up? Or was it really just additional? Or uh, I don't know. What, what helped it no, shine it, so much there? For me, it just casually just happened to be a very good card. A lot of the cards that I was running in Moldrotha were kind of must answer. So I could even something like a Deathrite Shaman 
a lot of people, you know, if I'm eating all the creatures in their decks or I'm keeping them from, you know, copying spells in their graveyard a bunch of times, Deathrite Shaman kind of needs to get answered. So the people going out of their way to kill it, it's it's really nice. And then the fact that even when you get it into Astal Cave of Eternity and somebody ghost quarters it, you can still replay it as an enchantment too. So it's it's very hard to get rid of. And it's not that hard in Moldrotha or Marin or Carador of Clan Neltoth, whichever ones <laughs> Dana wants to call them. It's not hard to, to get stuff recurring again. So I really, really liked Journey to Eternity. So hearing you say it's it's been so-so, like I said, it's it's a little surprising. I, I'm not making any moves to get it out of the deck. I, it is just one that I've, you know, it's been on the back burner in my mind, I suppose, where I'm like, huh, you haven't overperformed in the way I expected you to. But I'm glad to hear that your experience has been good, though. Yeah, how often do you think you actually get to play Journey to Eternity? Is it one that you maybe you haven't come across very often? That could, and so it's just yeah, that could easily be part of it. That's fair. All right. Yeah, we'll play more games. That's <laughs> yeah. that's my suggestion. <laughs> exactly. I love it. But anyway, let's let's get back moving down the rest of the list. Ashnod's Altar, I'm assuming you are running. Uh, all of the other Marin players would annihilate me if I wasn't running an, a sacrifice engine this efficient. So the Cult of Neltoth would, <laughs> would shoot you down. So what about a, a card that I know recently, uh, we actually had a conversation on Twitter with, uh, with Benny Smith, uh, awesome commander writer, Dictate of Erebos and Grave Pacts. Are you playing those? Those are kind of controversial cards. They're They're borderline oppressive. Are you playing them, and what do you think of them just as cards in general? I do really like them. So th- this should also probably be a moment for me to mention generally how my Marin deck tends to win. The usual way that I'm going to set up a win condition with Marin is going to be by using cards such as Kokosho or Grey Merchant of Asphodel, or in some of the cases, something like a Poison Tip Archer. Basically, it drains life from the rest of the table by sacrificing the creatures and then recurring those creatures and doing it all over again and again and again. And since that's not a very aggressive plan, I definitely like to have effects like Dictative Erebos and Grave Pack to keep the rest of the board clear so that I can do that without anyone bothering me. Because one of the things that I am a little bit weak to is a lot of aggression. Marin does take a minute to get rolling. So if people are, you know, completely destroying me than a card like Dictate of Erebus or Grave Pact. They're so efficient, which is why they can sometimes be called oppressive. They're so efficient for a meta like mine that I do enjoy having them as a safeguard. They're like continual wrath of gods for me that don't at all affect my game plan. They just totally synergize with it. So I totally see the argument that they're not necessarily as fun for a bunch of people, but I do trust the folks in my playgroup. They uh, they run a lot of answers, generally not just for my Marin, but also for enchantments like this. So it hasn't been too much of a problem for us, which is why I do feel comfortable running them, and also why I'm not running, say, Butcher of Malakir, which is a really great budget substitution if you don't happen to have, you know, the money for a Grave Pact. I think that those are really, really powerful effects. All right, that's fair. I think it's a good, good note that you made that it just depends on the power level of your playgroup on whether or not Dictate is... is over the top or not yeah it's it's pretty messed up i'm not gonna lie i do feel a little like nickel bolus every time that a dictate of erebus triggers especially if i'm using something like a uh like a fleshbag marauder to trigger it because then they have to sacrifice two creatures but keeping that board clear so that i can enact my game plan of draining everyone with kokosho or with gray merchant of asphodel by repeatedly bringing those creatures back that's really really clutch and so for, you know, that particular strategy, I think keeping the board clear is going to be really, really important. And that's why I am running those. I mean, anything that we can do to make you feel seedy a little bit, I, I'm all for. 
So let's get back to the list. Let's move on down. Uh, I know there's a couple cards that you're not playing. Uh, next one is Jared Golgari Lich Lord. Why'd you skip that one? Yeah, so Jared Golgari Lich Lord feels like it would work perfectly with the strategy that I just mentioned, where I'm sacrificing creatures to make everyone else lose life. The problem is just that Jared costs seven mana before he does anything. And with Marin, I don't want to spend any mana at all. I want to just, you know, bring creatures back for free. And so it is a very powerful effect, but... I also guess I I kind of feel as though like I don't need Gerard since I have something like Grey Merchant and Kokosho or Poison Departure. I've got a couple of other things that I can use already. And honestly, now that I'm thinking about it a little bit harder, many of the creatures in my deck don't tend to have that big of a of power. They tend to be pretty weaker creatures. I'm running stuff like Wood Elves. I'm running, you know, really tiny creatures like Sporefrog or Caustic Caterpillar or Eternal Witness. So Gerard doesn't feel like he has too many targets to sacrifice to drain a bunch of life in the first place. If I had something like a, a Galta in the deck, then that would be a perfect target for Gerard. But generally, I've got a bunch of 5-5s five and paying 7 mana to drain 5 life from the rest of the table doesn't feel as impactful it, it could eventually certainly inevitably win, lead to a win condition but i guess at the moment i just don't feel as though i've needed it all right that's fair so then the next ones i'm assuming that you also have vasir seer buried alive shieldred that i do yep the, i i feel like since you've mentioned them a couple times probably means that you have them in there <laughs> yeah and finally the last one that we have on the list Maserick, uh crawl death priest He's an exclusion. Now, why is that? Oh, man. This is actually the hardest one for me. Maserat Krell Death Priest, Confession Time. That's the commander that I wanted to build when this particular, when Marin's commander set, I think it was 2015, when that came out. Maserat is actually the commander I was initially drawn to. The problem is that Maserat is amazing with cards that have Persist. Things like Woodfall Primus. When you get Maserek out and a Woodfall Primus, which will enter the battlefield, destroy a non-creature permanent, and then it can persist, so it would come back with a minus one counter. As soon as you get Maserek and Woodfall Primus and a sack engine online, like an Ashnod's Altar, you've just gone infinite, even without necessarily intending to, because Woodfall Primus comes back with a minus one counter, but Maserek gives a plus one counter to all of your stuff, which removes the minus one counter so that you can sacrifice it again to do the entrance to the battlefield effect again. It's amazing. It's super efficient. I don't begrudge anyone for doing an effect that powerful, but it felt a little too much for me. I didn't want it to necessarily be a combo deck. I wanted it to do some graveyard stuff. So Maserek, I knew that if I were to put that into a deck or build that deck itself, I wouldn't be able to resist the combo temptations, and it just didn't feel quite right. That isn't the deck that I wanted to build. I don't want to build combo, I want to build graveyards. So that's why he couldn't make the cut, but man, do I miss him. He's one of my favorite cards that I just haven't been able to slot in. Hmm. Do you disagree? I, I, mean, I, I think it's very powerful, but I do, I do like the point that you made that it's probably not the most fun to blow up the entire board all at once. I think that you could get away with it. You've already said that your your playgroup has a fairly high power level. Uh, yes, you are running Woodfall Primus. Yes, you are. You could run Maserek. I think if they're both in the 99 as opposed to putting Maserek in the command zone, I think it plays a little bit differently. But I do get your point on maybe that's a little too unfun to, to include. So I can't blame you. I, I know it's, it's only at 50% basically of Marin decks. So seems the community is pretty split. I can also see how the plus one counters doesn't really do anything with how you want to win the game. Oh, yeah. Since I'm more draining, I'm not doing as much of a big creature combat thing. And Maserick pumping everything up. 
I mean, he can, he does a surprising amount of work. When you sacrifice, you know, a, an evolving wilds, he'll also pump up your entire team. And that's true of every player. So, like, right. I, I do think it could be really powerful. But, yeah, I don't think I generally have too many creatures on the board. And when I do, it's probably as the result of an Avenger of Zendikar or something. But then I'm immediately sacrificing them all to Ashnod's Altar to get a bunch of mana. So, yeah. Also, probably another thing that I should mention, I think my love of Mazarek is what drew me so much to Rayhan Lost of the Abzon in the first place. Since I didn't end up actually building the Masaryk deck, I gravitated towards Rayhan when that one came out. That makes sense. Makes yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. So Joey, what what's uh before we we let Dana pick your deck apart? What's something <laughs> that's overperformed? What's something that doesn't show up quite so much in Marin's numbers, but in your deck has just been above and beyond a plus all-star so i'm not running a card like razaketh but i am running a card like pattern of rebirth this is something we've done on a head-to-head in a previous uh previous Mm -hmm. episode i'm honestly very surprised that pattern of rebirth doesn't show up on marin's page whatsoever that's a four minute enchantment you enchant a creature when it's put into a graveyard from play that creature's controller which is you may search their library for a creature card and put it straight into play and then shuffle their library Maybe this is why it feels like Journey to Eternity hasn't made as much of an impact is because I'm running a card like Pattern of Rebirth, which I just slap onto any old Viserysir, and then boom, it's sacrificed and becomes a Shieldred, or it becomes... I I can't even think there's so much value that you can get from it. It becomes any big creature. It becomes an Avenger of Zendikar. It becomes a Woodfall Primus. Like, that enchantment is crazy, crazy powerful. I really think that more folks should play it because it's uh, it's a free creature. It's a free creature for a four-mana enchantment that rewards you for death. What more could you want? I mean, I do agree. I was the one who challenged the stats on Pattern of Rebirth. (laughs) It's a great card. Uh, I thought when it was included in the recent Ultimate Masters... I was super excited because I I thought one of the reasons that Pattern of Rebirth wasn't played too much was because it's just such an old card and nobody really knew what it was. Uh, Same with Defense of the Heart, which is one of my other favorite cards from that block. So yeah, Pattern of Rebirth, I think the numbers will go up. I I do think with it being a $2 card now, it's going to get more play now. Yeah, absolutely gross value. But as I understand it, Dana might have some challenges for my deck. I have a challenge of stats here for you. The card I'm curious about is pernicious deed now i understand pernicious deed once upon a time was feared all across the land as a really really effective board wipe but i've personally never ever seen it really do very much work it's been my experience and this may not apply to you but it's been my experience that when someone drops it no one for the most part gets rattlesnaked in fear they just start swinging at you because they don't want it out so they want to force you to pop it so they can move on with the game. So it doesn't seem to really work as a rattlesnake, at least in my experience. So if you're just using it for a board wipe, I feel like you'd be better served with just a board wipe or even something like Oblivion Stone. That's probably going to cost you less mana to do a full wipe. Ooh, Oblivion Stone. I hadn't quite considered that one. Because that's going to cost I you... that suggestion. Because that costs three to cast, and then it costs five to crack and destroy all non-land permanents. So, you know, it's going to be eight, but like if Pernicious Deed wants to do a full clear, it costs three to cast and then you need to pump X mana into it. And there's probably going to be some five drops, some six drops. So you could easily spend more mana. And looking at your deck, I feel like there's probably not like your curve is relatively low. So I don't think you're doing a lot of I'm going to you know do it for four and leave these six giant creatures up because you just don't have a lot of giant creatures. 
So I think you're probably mostly using it for just a, I'm going to pop it and wipe the board and wipe everything, in which case I think Oblivion Stone might do a better job. That's okay. I So yeah, initially what I wanted was just another type of spell that would uh, you know allow me to destroy things whenever my creatures were compromised. So like we'd mentioned the Rest in Peace or Torpor Orb example uh, from earlier, because I generally do have removal only pinpointed on my creatures. So I do like my spells to have more of the mass board wipe uh, effect on them. So yeah, that's probably why I included it in the first place. I think it is still probably fine, but you're totally right to point out that I'm not necessarily saving anything with my pernicious deed because you're right, the curve is pretty darn low. It's more likely that I'd leave other opponents, big creatures that I'm afraid of, alive. Right, right. you're going to miss things with it more often than you are going to save mana under Oblivion Stone. I think pernicious deed not hitting Planeswalkers, I think that may not be irrelevant as well. Yeah, that's true, because Oblivion Stone does. Good point, Matt. Yeah, I think you're right. Not affecting Planeswalkers, that's another weak spot for the deck. I think that you've probably hit the nail on the head with this one. I might make that switch tonight. I really, I, I like that suggestion a lot, Dana. Thank you. You are welcome. And at that point, let's shut the show down. I've already won the game, so let's just move on and we'll come back next week. <laughs> this is, this has been the EDH Redcast. Thanks a lot, guys. No, 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 not yet. We've got one more deck to get through, and that is Matt's. We do. Let's let's do this. All right. Matt, what commander are you bringing us here tonight? Well, since I do love me some Selesnya, Joey got to talk about his necromancy. I decided to bring Meriwether Light Duelist to the table. It is probably one of my favorite decks, one of the most fun to play. And it's pretty much everything that I love to do. Uh, play a bunch of toolbox creatures, go wide, flood the board, and then uh, win through combat. I know it's not popular these days, but I do love the combat step still. So why don't you tell us what Miri does? So Miri, Weatherlight Duelist, one green-white for a 3-2 first striking cat warrior. Whenever Miri, Weatherlight Duelist attacks, each opponent can't block with more than one creature this combat. And as long as Miri, Weatherlight Duelist is tapped, no more than one creature can attack you each combat. So it's great on the offensive and on the defensive when you happen to be going wide. Uh, make sure it's kind of a, a crawl space type of effect. And then it's almost like a, a different type of propaganda. Only one creature can attack you. Now, it doesn't matter how big that creature is. That's, that is kind of a iffy spot with the ability. But it's great on offense and defensive. So if you play in a play group like mine where combat is common, uh, Miri's a very great commander. So let's go to the EDH rec page for Miri and take a look. We have one new card in the list, which is Smothering Tithe, which I believe you are not running in your deck. Is that correct? I, I am not running it. I have not gotten a copy of it, but ramp isn't really a problem for, for the deck. So Smothering Tithe, I do agree. It's a very powerful card. I, I was very excited to see it. Um, I love land tax. I love Smothering Tithe. I have both in my Tesa deck uh, that just came out in uh, Revnica Allegiance. But I don't have a Smothering Tithe in Miri yet. I probably will grab one eventually down the road because just the ongoing ramp that you get is it is it's incre it, insanely powerful. It's so good. I can't even talk straight. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think it's a really great card, but I feel like Selesnya is one of those color combinations where you probably don't necessarily want to run it like you do in a whole lot of other ones that are paired with white. Right, you don't really need it. If you, if you, I were in Boros or Orzov, I definitely would be running it. I, I would make sure that's a shoe in But since I am Selesny, since I have plenty of other ways to ramp in green, uh, it's not really that important. 
I, well, I shouldn't say that important, but it's just not that important. Uh, well, yeah, it isn't that important, I guess. So let's drop down and look at the signature cards for this deck, and I feel like we're going to see some deviation here just because it looks like, by and large, signature cards tend to all be cats, and you aren't that concerned with cats or things that do cat things. I, I am not. Now, a lot of the cats, just especially if they've been printing lately, would be good fits for it, and I still am running a couple cards in there. Gisal Goldmane, if you're going wide, that's a fine card to be playing anyways. Gisal uh, Goldmane is two white-white for a 4-4 first striker, but you can pay three white-white. Uh, and attacking creatures get plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of attacking creatures. If you're going wide, if you're playing a bunch of tokens, that's a fine ability to, to be playing. It's a little expensive, but um, uh, overrun, basically, uh, it's not bad. I'm not playing it because a lot of people just double down on the cat synergy Jazal is a cat, um, but the next card I am playing actually, and it's actually I was inspired to to put it in a while ago. Actually, I want to say because of a conversation you and I had, Dana, on uh, the EDH Rec uh, Slack channel, where you were saying Nakato War Pride probably should be in every Miri deck. Uh, it, it's so good when everything's tapped; they can only block one creature. They have to almost essentially block Nakato War Pride, but that card is three green, 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 so triple green. For a 3-3 Cat Warrior, Nakata War Pride must be blocked by exactly one creature of Fable, convenient with Mary's ability. But whenever Nakata War Pride attacks, put X tokens into play tapped at attacking that are copies of Nakata War Pride, where X is the number of creatures defending player controls and remove the tokens from the game at end of turn. So There's a lot going on there. So usually the beauty of that is basically they have to block all your war prides that come in and your all your other creatures get through. Except for in this case, not only do your other creatures get through, so do the Nakata war pride copies. Exactly. So, and, and it's for every creature that the defending player controls. So if they're playing a go wide deck as well, like this is a mirror breaker in token decks. It's so crazy that they have to block this, which means they have 20 tokens on the battlefield. Well, they only get to block the original, but you're also swinging with 20 three threes, which is, crazy in addition to whatever else you happen to have in play exactly yeah so uh the fact that it, it creates combat so difficult or makes combat so difficult to navigate um nakata war pride i think probably should be in a few more decks it is a six drop so it's it's up there as far as cost goes but the effect is it, it synergizes so well with miri yeah it's perfect for that deck for sure absolutely it was it was a good conversation and i'm glad you turned me on to that card so then we have three more cats right in a row here. And which of those three are you running, if any? I'm not running any of those cats. So I'm not playing White Sun Zenith. Uh, it's just a little mana intensive to only make two twos. Uh, it's it's fine. It, you can recycle it, but, um, but I'm not really doing a whole lot of that. Uh, Jedi Ojanin of uh, Ephrava, same reason that you're not playing it. Just doesn't do a whole lot for the mana investment. Uh, I would rather play Nakata War Pride for six mana. Uh, Kasali Pride Mage, I love, and I had it in the deck for a long time. It's a card that I've played in probably every format that I've played. Just a 2-2 with Exalted for two. You can pay one and sacrifice it to destroy target artifact or enchantment. It's a perfect toolbox card. It's probably one of the most Selesnia cards out there. Um, but I have cut it just over time. Uh, I probably will slot it back in every now and then, but it just happens to be a cat as well. So it's showing up pretty high on the list. I think it should be in a lot of Miri decks, just maybe not as much as the Cat Tribal Synergy makes it look like you should. 
Yeah, that all makes sense. Uh, looking at those exclusions from your particular deck, I get it completely. Yeah. And then finally, Leonin uh, War Leader. It's a new card from M19, two and two white for a 4-4. Four, four. Whenever it attacks, put two 1-1 one, one white creature tokens with lifelink that are tapped and attacking. Uh, it's kind of a different take on Brimmas, uh, if you guys remember um, that from Theros, or Born of the Gods, I'm sorry. If you're going wide, it's a very good card. Uh, if you have overrun effects, anything like that that's going to make your creatures bigger, I don't think it's a bad card, but I think it, same thing with Kazali Pride Mage, it gets that that Cat Tribal bump. I don't think it's nearly that powerful. It's in 57% of, of Miri decks since M19 has come out, which is a, a pretty good number. I just don't know if it's that good. But the next card I am running, because Miri, more often than not, isn't going to get blocked unless they are prioritizing getting her off the battlefield. So Sword of the Animist is a very good card. Uh, it's two mana for an equipment. Uh, equipped creature gets plus one, plus one. Whenever equipped creature attacks, you may search your library for a basic land card and put on the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. So it's just a good way to, to ramp yourself incidentally. Uh, even if they you put it on something that isn't Miri and have Miri swing and, and reconnaissance her back out of combat, you're still going to get those, those triggers from Sword of the Animus. So it's a very good card. It's a good way to thin your deck over time. I know I'm, I'm not big on the play fetch lands, thin to win type of mentality, but you know you get four or five triggers out of this. You're getting four or five lands out of your way. With some of the other cards like Abundance that I have in the deck, it synergizes and lines up really, really well. So I do like Sword of the Animist. Yeah, that's free real estate for sure. I get that one. Definitely. Yeah. Two more cats. Then we've got Kemba and Regal Caracal here. Neither of them are in the deck. Kemba, it doesn't fit anything of what I'm doing here. I'm not playing too many enchantment or too many equipment. I excuse me. I know I just talked about sort of the animus being great, but Kemba needs kind of a critical mass, and and I'm not playing that. Regal Caracal. If you're playing Cat Tribal, it probably should be in 100 because it's a Cat Lord that gives you lifelink. I'm not playing a Cat deck though, so Regal Caracal gets the gets the cut. All right. Next, we have the first land in this list, which is Rogue's Passage. Rogue's Passage. I am not playing, actually. I should be. I probably should be. But paying essentially five mana to make a creature slip through when I have other ways that are less mana hungry, uh, I do not have Rogue's Passage in there. And you're not really about getting that one big stompy creature through. You're about getting a bunch of creatures no. through. Exactly. So it's it's fine. It makes a lot of sense. If, if you're trying to make sure that Miri survives every combat because you don't have other ways to do it, Rogue's Passage is a good 50 cent way to do that. Yeah, definitely. So we round out the signature cards with two more cats and two more pieces of equipment. And those two pieces of equipment, I probably should be playing Lightning Greaves, Swift Foot Boots. If you have any commander that does anything valuable towards your game plan or just creatures in general, we've sung praises about Lightning Greaves and Swift Foot Boots. I just don't have any spare copies, if we're going to be honest. <laughs> uh, they're all in other decks like my Valduk or my uh, Niv-Mizzet deck. Don't have either of those in my deck or in my Miri deck, I should say. And then Fleece Main Lion, as much as I love Fleece Main Lion, I built a standard deck around Fleece Main Lion. That's how much I love that card, but it's just not that great in Commander, especially when you're not playing any cat tribal synergies again. And then Rakshasa Golden Cub, seven mana. If I'm paying seven mana, I want to do something much better than Rakshasa Golden Cub. That all makes sense to me. I've got no arguments with any of that. So let's look at the top cards now. Mary's Wake, Mirari's Wake, excuse me, is the first tap card on the list. Which is a very powerful card. I'm not running it. I'm not running any mana doublers. I thought about Zendikar Resurgent for a little bit. Um, 
I don't have a Mirari's Wake. I probably should because uh, it's a just a very powerful card. Having a, an Anthem effect that doubles your mana, what's not to love? And if you're playing green-white, then you probably should be playing Mirari's Wake, which means I'm probably doing it wrong. I can, I can admit that. <laughs> you made my own argument for me. Love it. You're welcome, Joey. <laughs> I, I just care about you. And then finally, uh, Cultivate. I am not running. I have some other ramp options that I'm running and that three spot that I like a lot more that we'll get to here in a minute. Okay. Then we have a removal spell. Sorry, that's really throwing me off. You're not running Cultivate. What about Kodama's Reach? Not running Kodama's Reach either. Those are... What? Okay, we'll, we'll have to so, get to those other ramp options then because I'm that really throws me for a loop. So in general, actually, I've... I've fallen into the school of Dana Roach when it comes to my mana ramp, actually. I've I've tended to get more towards the rampant growth, the nature's lore type of effects than I have over Cultivate. I want everything to be happening as quick as possible. Lowering my curve across the board in this deck has been one thing that I've been trying to actively keep in mind. So just being able to get that one, because I don't really have a problem drawing too many lands, especially when you have stuff like Sword of the Animist. So Cultivate, I would rather shave that one mana off and just get something right on the battlefield. I'm not worried about getting the second follow-up land that next turn. So Cultivate, Kadama's Reach, don't make the cut for me. I'm really surprised. I think actually all three of us submitted a a deck for this particular episode, and none of us have Kadama's Reach or Cultivate in these green decks. Huh, yeah, you're right, because I've taken them out of my deck as well. That's a good point. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, you're drawing so many cards that it doesn't feel like you need it. I have my ramp in the form of creatures, and I guess we'll get to Matt's other form of ramp here in a minute. Just a really weird observation. I don't feel like that happens every day. Doesn't. It definitely doesn't. Alrighty. Uh, but the next card on there, Swords of Plowshares. Of course, I'm playing it. Uh, Swords of Path, just two of the most efficient removal spells in the format, maybe, if not the game. So yeah, definitely running both of those. Kazali Slinger's the next card. I am not running. I think that's another just cat tribal card that people play quite a bit more. It isn't a bad card, but I, it's just a worse Rex Age, in my opinion. Get, blowing up something for a 3-5 with Reach, I would rather just, like I said, lower my curve, play Reclamation Sage, or put uh, Kazali Pride Mage back in my my deck over Kazali Slingers. Harmonize, though, I am playing. Harmonize is just a great Dana Roach, <laughs> high floor type of card. It's a good draw effect. I, I love it. Yeah, You always know what you're getting with Harmonize. It gets the job done. Exactly. Hammer of Nazan is next on our list here. So these next five cards, I'm not running, and only one of them I think is questionable to not include. Uh, so Hammer of Nazan, not playing. Alms Collector, it is a fun card. It's a nice way to keep blue decks in check. It's kind of a, a good hate bear with flash. I've been intrigued by it, but I've never have, have just gone out of my way to get a copy. But it does intrigue me. It's probably one that I, I should put on my sideboard maybe list. Pride Sovereign, if I were doing the Cat Tribal, it'd be a little bit better. But Skull Clamp, I'm not playing. And I, I want to put it in. I struggle to find room for it. But it just, it never seems to make the cut. It's one of the, it's like that 102nd, 103rd card for me in this deck. Uh, it's a powerful draw engine, but I don't run a lot of sacrifice type of effects. The ones that I do are, are combo-centric, actually. So I, I don't do a lot of Skull Clamp and, or just really much to take advantage of it. And then Nizan Revered Bladesmith, I'm not playing. Uh, if I were playing more equipment, if I were playing the pre-con type of deck, it'd be a good fit. But as is, I'm not running any of these cat tribal synergies because uh, I didn't buy the pre-con. I just bought Miri because I wanted to build my own deck around it. Well, if if I will 
take a minute here and share my own personal experience with Alms Collector because I did put a cat tribal it. deck together for my son and I probably have played it more than he's played it. Uh-huh. And the problem I think is mostly in the color combination. With Alms Collector, it's generally not the kind of card where you can hold up your four mana and if no one casts a draw spell worth neutralizing, you usually don't have something else you can use that mana for. So you wind up Rather than just having your four mana go to waste, you just flash and end a turn and then take your turn. And I think that's what the problem is. I think if you were in, if this was in maybe some kind of a Bant deck or something where you might have something else to do with that four mana, you could have it in hand for multiple turns and use it at the optimal time. Instead, you just have to like, well, I hope this time around the table someone casts a draw spell and I can use it or I have to just play it or I've wasted the mana. Yeah, this deck is definitely about playing your mana efficiently. So having to kind of depend on what the other players at the table are doing, it's not exactly what Miri wants to be doing. Miri wants to play out as much as possible and then turn things sideways and get things over quick rather than playing the reactive game plan. Uh, and that's just Lesney in general. Yeah, yep. That's fine because I, I, I enjoy being a little more proactive rather than waiting around trying to hold up four mana or whatever with, with Alms Collector. It's, it's really good. I've seen it do fantastic work in an Afara deck where you're doing everything at instant speed. So if you have it in hand, you can just wait for the perfect moment and do a bunch of other stuff if you don't use it. But yeah, outside of that, I think it's it's much more narrow than people realize. Yeah, I agree. So the last few cards we have here are three more cats and a piece of equipment again. It's, it's weird. It's almost like this is a pre-con yeah, commander. Yeah, very similar. Well, all four of these cards I'm not playing. Behemoth Sledge is a very good equipment. Uh, I love Behemoth Sledge back in my Rafika the Many deck days. That's just, yeah, life leak, trample, buffs up your creature. It's pretty good. It's not a lot to not like. Um, but I'm just not playing it. I don't have a whole lot of equipment in the deck. Uh, Stockland Leonin, I really liked when we first saw the card spoiled. I just, I didn't buy the pre-con. And it's a one, if you got more than one use out of it without having to jump through some hoops, I would like Stocking Leonin a little bit more. Uh, Stocking Leonin, it's two and a white for a 3-3. Three, three. When Stocking Leonin enters the battlefield, secretly choose an opponent. And then you can reveal the player you chose, exile target creature that's attacking you if it's controlled by the chosen player. Activate this ability only once. So if you didn't have to flicker it and, and like I said, go through some sort of Deadeye Navigator tricks to abuse it a little bit more, I would like it. But it's it's so much work for just a green-white deck to do. It's a cool design. I, I, I like the idea of it, but it's just not for, it's not for this deck. And then Leon and Shikari, it's an equipment-based creature. Don't need it. And then Brim is, it's fine, actually. It's it's a nice, cheap creature. It's going to help build you an army, same as uh, Leonin Warleader that I talked about. It's just not not for me. Uh, it, it might be just a, a tad slow. I do like that you can basically make a creature every, or on everybody's turn, really, because if you attack with him with Vigilance and you block one of your three opponents, you're getting quite a few creatures, which is great, but at the same time, it's it's just a little slow. Well, and I imagine in a green deck, you've got access to a whole bunch of other token creators like Avenger of Zendikar or Tendershoe Dryad or things like that that just make tokens much faster. Yeah, exactly. If you're going on the token route, if you're partnering with green, there there's some better options. So Joey has managed to contain himself for several minutes here. So let's talk <laughs> about your ramp spells that you're running in place of the Cultivating Kadama's Reach. Yeah. So... Probably, and this is my all-star, I'll, I'll beat you guys to the punch and say the most underrated card in a Miri deck is Harvest Season. Uh, so in my deck, it focuses, 
it's not so much on the cat synergy. It's not the token synergy. It's trying to kind of play a, a toolbox. One of my favorite cards is Glare of Subduel, but Harvest Season is probably the best ramp spell for a Miri deck. So Harvest Season is two and a green for a sorcerer that says, search your library for up to X basic land cards, where X is the number of tapped creatures you control, and put those cards on the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. So I'm playing a lot of things to get Miri tapped. Even if I don't attack with Miri, getting her to tap and play that defensive game at the same time is very, very good. So if I'm playing a bunch of effects like Cryptolith right to turn Miri into a mana dork that also creates a crawl space. Stuff like Rishkar Pima Renegade. So if I tap three creatures to pay for Harvest Season, I'm getting three lands for three mana. This also scales. So if I swing wide, play Reconnaissance, and pull Miri back out of combat, I still get that attack trigger. So they can only block one of my creatures, which is perfect. But then I also have five or six tapped creatures. Then I follow up with Harvest Season and get five or six basic lands on the battlefield for only three mana, which that rate is awesome. And it puts it straight on the battlefield. I know it only gets basics. I'm not going to nitpick one. Just the rate itself is so, so good. Yeah, and I actually, in addition to a really efficient synergistic spell like that, a bunch of your creatures, in addition to being very, very low cost, you've got a bunch of mana dorks in here as well. You mentioned Rishkar, you've got Birds of Paradise, Land of War Elves, Devoted Druids. So you are getting the necessary ramp just in the places that you need it more. So I'm beginning to understand the Cultivate Kodama's Reach choice a bit more now. Yeah, and even stuff like some of my utility creatures, like Yeast and Wandering Bard. It's great to get some some toolbox creatures out there, pay two mana, tap it, throw something out there. Uh, Amara, Soul of Accord, if I tap her with, say, you know, Cryptolith Rite, I get a 1-1 creature. Then I also fuel my Harvest Season. Stuff like Devoted Druid plays around very well. So yeah, there's there's a lot of creatures that I can tap to get some sort of ability out of it as well, even if I don't use them to, to cast my harvest season all right i'm i'm super digging it i think that's really cool but here on the edh redcast we can't just be praising you we've also got to challenge you which means i'm gonna challenge a card in your deck right now one that i don't think makes the cut now you're gonna have to hear me out because i know that i just did a (laughs) marin deck and it's all about graveyards so for me to pick a card that you have in here to mess with other people's graveyards is gonna sound like i'm biased but hear me out the card in your deck that I'm challenging is the card Ground Seal. That's a one and a green. It's an enchantment for two mana. When it enters the battlefield, you draw a card. Very nice. And it says cards and graveyards can't be the targets of spells or abilities. Really great. Can help get, you know, a, a Marin not working anymore or stop me from playing the card Victimize or something like that. But man, I got to be honest, I don't feel like as a necromancer myself, I'm all that scared of a card like Ground Seal. I feel like I have the means to get rid of it and it won't bother me once it's gone I can continue on my merry way. And some other of my graveyard decks, I know, I have plural, something like Mimeoplasm doesn't even target creatures in my graveyard, so he doesn't mind. If I'm playing a living death, well, I don't, I'm don't. i not targeting a, a single thing in my graveyard, so I'll just get them all back anyway, and it didn't stop me from doing graveyard interactions. So I don't think that Ground Seal deserves the cut. If you're looking for graveyard hate, I would look for it in a different area, such as Relic of Progenitus, or you're in white, Rest in Peace could be another option, things like that. Yeah, and I definitely agree. I, I know a weakness of the deck is my graveyard hate. Uh, obviously, I'm playing Scavenging Ooze. It's one of the best creatures of all time, if not ever, period. Full stop. <laughs> Don't at me. Um, but yeah, Ground Seal, it, it's a card that I just had laying around. It probably should be a rest in peace. I, I definitely agree. I'm not doing very much with the graveyard myself. Sure, I'm playing Eternal Witness, Regrowth, some of those types of cards. 
but ground seal, yeah, it, it, it's kind of underwhelming. It can trip switch is nice, but it's not great. And I, I definitely agree. I, it could be a better card in general. Yeah, I just think that there are a few others, such as Relic, that kind of like let you rattlesnake a little bit more. I'm terrified of a Relic of Regenerus. I'm terrified of a Rest in Peace because they can do damage even if I have the capacity to deal with them. And so something that's going to leave me completely crippled as a graveyard player scares me a bit more than Ground Seal, which just seems a bit more answerable. I do like that it draws you a card, but I still think that there are just some other better options. So from one graveyard player to a non-graveyard player, I just wanted you to know the way that you can actually really ruin my day. That's that's fair. I, I if there's anything I look forward to once a week, it's ruining Joey's Mondays. <laughs> I love it. Well, folks, this was really, really super awesome. I love this exercise pitting our decks against the data, and I hope that our listeners partake in this exercise too, because I think it's really edifying and it can help reinforce the way that you feel about certain cards. You know, the data on the website isn't always 100% correct. Sometimes the strategies that you're picking are totally different. Dana and I have decks that definitely conform a bit more to the data that we see on the website, but Matt's went in a completely different direction than the cat tribal stuff that's usually on there. So, you know, using an exercise like this can help make sure that your deck truly feels like it's yours. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. And I think we, we also see a little bit, too, you see something about the commanders. You see it's really probably challenging to take Marin in any other direction than the one you took it. And it's really probably tough to do much with Reki other than what I did, whereas Miri is somewhat open-ended. You do have the option to go wide or you do have the option to go cats. There's a few different things you can do there. I think we see that in Matt's data, whereas I think for the most part, anyone building building Reki or Marin is going to hew pretty closely to those numbers. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I, I like what we've done. Joey obviously is the boring one who right. <laughs> pretty much just copies, <laughs> copies the Marin list. But yeah, I, I think it just shows you know, how we approach just building decks in general how we like to stray a little bit, how we challenge our own stats every now and then. It is a good exercise. I really enjoy these episodes, and I, I hope you know the listeners enjoy as much as we do. Calling my decks boring. Next time that we do a decks versus the data, <laughs> I'm going to have to pick something super, super unique. That's the message that I'm hearing here. We will post our deck lists in the notes for this episode. And again, listeners, I hope that you not only take a look through those, but also take a look through your own decks, compare them against the data, and see what revelations you can find because it is pretty darn fascinating. But with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on the Twitterbirds at Dana Roach, and you can hear me once a week on my other show, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenneth Schnorn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. And hey, maybe you can mention Corgis there as well. Uh, this podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight session, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander Spruce, to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. A funny Dictate story, I actually, you know, probably a year after Theros was out, I actually went to spec on Dictate Erebos and buy like 25 of them when they were, you know, 25 cents or something, and I wound up accidentally buying 25 Dictate of Nylea 
which was the same price. So like, you know, it's still like six bucks. I never went back and reordered them. That sucks. So now I'm sitting on 25 copies of Dictated Nylea that will never probably ever go up. And I, of mm-hmm. course. They, they reprinted it, didn't they? Uh, they well, they may well have, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's not even, it's not good enough that it would ever matter even if they did reprint it. They could add that card to the reserve list. It's price will not increase. Yeah. 